Alright friends, this is Kabbalah and Coffee, our weekly exploration of all things mystical. The objective is to learn a little bit more about ourselves so that we can, well, we can optimize our spiritual growth, our spiritual development, and uh, perhaps even get some divine life hacks under our sleeves, if you will. All right, so today is January 31st, the last day of January 2021. And we are in our book called Overcoming Folly, which looks like this. Um, and Overcoming Folly talks about all of the stories that we tell ourselves to get ourselves to do silly things. Hence the name Folly. Overcoming Folly is... The objective is to allow us to identify, to become more aware of those moments. Oh, Karen is asking a good question. Can this book be purchased? So the short answer is yes, if you get lucky on a resale. Yeah, Susan got one. Um, they, there, there are some secondhand ones. It's right now out of print from the publisher, which is the Chabad publisher, Chabad Publication Society. Uh, where I used to work, um, where I used to work before I moved to Atlanta, I called my guys. They're like, "It should be in print." In other words, like, we should get it back into print, but it's not right now. So hopefully, it's a big, it's a long book. It's like four hundred and some pages. So hopefully, as we go through it, a little bit more than four or six, um, but close. So as we go through this, hopefully, it'll come back into print. But I can't promise because I didn't get any guarantees. From them, other than. Alex sent me a picture. Sorry, you got a picture? Oh. I'm sorry. Oh, no worries, no worries. So, so um, yeah, so look, the PDF is available. If you want the PDF, it is available on um, HebrewBooks.org, which is a great website. HebrewBooks.org has permission of publishers, it, uh, Jewish publishers, to scan in the books. There are mostly Hebrew books. Yiddish, but also some English titles. If you go to hebrewbooks.org and type in the search box, which I think is in Hebrew, but if you can figure out where to, where, to hit the, where to type it in, Overcoming Folly, you should get the PDF and you can download it and peruse it on your own. Otherwise, I have it downloaded and I share it with you Sunday mornings. Okay, so again, Overcoming Folly is all about understanding. It's, it's about making us more aware, a little bit more aware of the stories that we spin in our own heads to get us sucked into negative behavior. And the premise is that if we were thinking clearly, if we had open eyes, if we were thinking in a healthy, rational way, and our judgment was not clouded, we wouldn't make the mistakes that we make, right? So how to optimize decision-making means thinking a little bit more clearly in the moment. That's, that's the premise of this text. And it's based on, by the way, a Talmudic statement that goes back, I don't know, 1,600 years, that says, Ein Adam over Avera, Ella Imkain, Nichnas Bo Ruachstus, which translates to, no one would ever commit an indiscretion. In other words, you and I would never do anything wrong unless... Good evening, Riva. Unless, unless we, unless, so no person commits a sin and indiscretion unless they are overcome or filled with or influenced by a ruach a spirit of folly. 
it's that inner voice or that inner, whatever you want to call it, that says to us, don't worry, it's not a big deal, or, or, or any number of, of, of justifications, rationalizations that our mind tells us to get us to do the thing that we know deep down we shouldn't be doing. And it's, it's these situations that we look back later, as we've discussed in all of our sessions, we look back later and say, what was I thinking? And when we apologize to someone, by the way, if, if it's not just between us and God, if you will, or between us and us, but if it's between us and someone else, like we said something or did something that harmed or hurt the other person, when we speak to them later and apologize, we might be tempted to say the words, I'm so sorry, I don't know what happened, that wasn't me, right? You ever hear somebody say that, that wasn't me? And you're thinking, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was, <laughs> right? Yeah, that wasn't anybody else. Right? That wasn't me. But it was you, so who, one second, yes? Yes. So what does it mean? But you first have to stop by and say hi to everybody. Okay, so what does it mean when a person says it wasn't me? What it means is it's not the real me. So then who did it? The fake me? One second, let's get up there. Say good morning. There you go. All right. On your way. Close the door. Okay, so... You'll have to deal with that. So, so um, when we say it wasn't me, it doesn't mean that it actually wasn't me. I was, it was a robot or an evil twin that looked like me. No. It was me, but what the expre that expression means, and it's actually genuine. It's really genuine. It sounds like an excuse. It sounds like a lame excuse, but it's, it actually is genuine because what it means is that that wasn't the true, that's not the true me. We're asking the person, please believe me that that's not really how I feel about you. That's really not how I think about you or feel about you. That was just a temporary glitch, temporary insanity. I said something or I did something, you know, that, that was, you know, that wasn't really me. But in the moment, we justified it in our own heads. That's the folly. That's what we're trying to address. If we could stop time, if we could freeze time, right, and slow, slow it down, and in that moment analyze, what am I thinking? What am I rationalizing? How am I rationalizing? How am I justifying? Can I stop myself before this goes further and spins out of control? Then we can be a little bit more helpful. So the goal here is to slow things down because awareness is the first step to change. If we're not aware of these steps that happen internally, if we're not aware of it, they're gonna happen again and again and we're not gonna be able to stop it. If we're aware, we're a little bit more self-aware, hold on, I know that when I start thinking along these lines, that is my justification narrative that ends up leading me into negative territory, let me slow it down and let me undo that, unravel that thought process, replace it with a different one and hopefully lead to a different outcome. If we can do that, we will be so much healthier. Now, I am not suggesting that when we become aware and we have different narratives to replace the folly narratives, that we will be 100% tzaddikim, that we will never think, say, or do anything wrong. I'm not suggesting that because at the end of the day, we're all human and therefore we're all susceptible to these very factors and forces and it's going to be a battle. But if we're not aware of it, and we don't have the tools to fight the battle, then we definitely don't have a chance. So this text is presenting us with 
Number one, the narratives of folly, in other words, the justification, rationalizations, neg the negative behavior narratives, and the, a narrative to counteract that foolish narrative. I hope that makes sense. That's a general introduction. This, is, this takes us to chapter two. In chapter one, we spoke about the folly of, oh, it looks good. I should try it. And the answer is, the response to that is, when somebody, when we're, when we're kind of like in that space of, oh, it looks good, let me try it, it's, wait a second, you're looking for something good, is that really good for you? Is that human good or is that animal good? Is that lower good or higher good? And we discussed that at length over the last several weeks. Today we jump into um, the way it's broken down is in different discourses. They're called Discourse 1, Discourse 2, Discourse 3. In the Hebrew it would be Mimer 1, Mimer 2, Mimer 3. Um, and each discourse has a number of chapters. We are up to Discourse number 2. And in this discourse, we introduce some new ideas. And the new idea we're going to talk about, which may not be new to you, but it's new in our text, the new idea we're going to speak of is, one second, let's let somebody else in, is the notion, which is a very important notion in Kabbalah, the notion of the dual souls. So this is really important. It's a fundamental, it's one of the most basic ideas in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. So it, it, it really, it's really important that we have this very, very solidly clear. How do we know about these two souls? What are they? How do they affect us, etc.? I'm going to do a quick crash course. Some of you may know this. Some of you, maybe it's the first time or maybe it's a little bit vague. Here's a crash course. I hope it comes across clearly. So in our tradition, Judaism teaches, Kabbalah teaches, that each person, each human being, possesses two souls. Nefesh alakit and Nefesh abahamit, which translate in English as a divine soul or a godly soul and an animal soul. What's the difference? Well, <laughs> night and day, basically. They're polar opposites. So the godly soul seeks pretty much connection with something higher than self. It seeks transcendence. It seeks selflessness, selfless expression. It seeks purpose. It seeks mission. It seeks giving. That's the godly soul. The animal soul seeks the opposite. Self-expression, selfishness, self-sustaining, sustainment, or whatever. Right? It seeks to feed self. So the godly soul lives for the other, and the animal soul lives for self. Let me be very clear here. It's important that we have an animal soul. Why? Because the animal soul is what helps us protect ourselves, survive. But there are a lot of challenges that come with the animal soul. It has an upside. It has a downside as well. So the downside of the animal soul is the, when, when the animal soul, which is, can be associated with ego, when that takes over our self, to the point that we become completely self-absorbed and focused on what we want to the detriment of others or to the detriment of our higher standing, that's when things get into very murky slash undesirable territory. So the animal soul, you know, animals, there's nothing, there's nothing bad or evil about an animal, right? But 
living, a human being living solely with their inner animal could lead to a very negative place. Now, there's a, there are verses, um, I forget where it says this, Unashamot Aniasisi, it says referring to God, I created souls, which Kabbalah understands, not to just mean that God created many souls for many people, but rather I created souls, plural, within each person. Each individual person has a duality of soul. Two souls, a higher soul, a lower soul. There's also, there are also other verses that point to this idea. Again, it's not an innovation of Kabbalah. It's something that Kabbalah reveals that's based on classic Jewish scripture and teaching as well. One other thing to point out, which is very important in this conversation, is that this gives us insight as to why we so often seem to be in inner conflict. Right? So often we seem to be torn between two decisions or two paths. Right? Should I do this? Or should I do that? And often, not always, sometimes it's parallel paths, you know, either, you know, um, which restaurant should I go to, this one or that one. But sometimes it's higher versus lower choices, higher or lower behavior. And the choice that's before us is, should I do the thing that's the right thing, or that's the selfless thing, or that's the altruistic thing, or should I do the thing that's, that feels good for me? And very often, we find ourselves in the crosshairs of that actual predicament of higher or lower choices. And we feel, ourselves pull, we feel ourselves pulled in two different directions. So in the book of Tanya, which is the Bible of uh, Hasidic philosophy and practical Kabbalah, in the Tanya, the author says, as a, as a statement of fact and also as a statement of comfort, that when we feel ourselves torn between these two directions, higher versus lower, don't think that somehow, some, somewhere, we are broken inside. It's not, a, it's not a flaw, it's a feature. In other words, it's not like we are one that is now being somehow desiring two different things. No, there's two different forces and each one desires its unique or its specific path. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? It's not like one entity that is somehow schizophrenic. Rather, it's two different entities that naturally pull in different directions. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? So a person might say, if I've accomplished so much, I've invested so much spiritually, right? I focus so much on my spiritual growth, how is it that I'm still getting pulled down and distracted by all of these lower distractions? So to this, Tanya says, what do you expect? You still have an animal soul. Yeah, you've been indulging in your godly soul, but you still have another force inside, and that pulls down. And you're not going to get rid of that. So learn to recognize it, and you can, you can, you can you know, try to ignore it or push it down or whatever it is or deal with it, but don't expect that you're not going to have that voice temptation, that tendency within, because you have an animal soul, and that's what it does. Does that make sense? If we were monolithic, if we only had one soul, then we could say at some point we become perfectly pure. But since we have two souls, pretty much expect a constant battle and tension. No matter how much progress is made, there's still another captain in the, in the cockpit, right? You have two, you have co-pilots. That's what I'm looking for. You have co-pilots and you got someone else with a steering wheel. 
So yeah, it's going to constantly be attention. Does that make sense? Ah, I wanted to touch, something came to mind while I was saying that, that I thought might enhance the understanding of this. Let me see if I can retrace the thought process. In the meantime, we'll let someone else in. Um, let me think what I was going to share with you. Um, two different energies pulling in two different directions. Progress, therefore, is not exclusive. Okay, I mean, all right, if it comes to me back, if it comes to me again, I'll mention it. But otherwise, this is the idea. There are rare tzaddikim, like a few in each generation, that their animal soul is effectively not operational. So they are only driven by one tendency, a higher tendency, but that is the super rare exception to the rule. The rule is that we have two souls pulling in two different directions. Oh, I was going to give you the example of Rebecca, Rivka, our, page, our matriarch, Rebecca. So Rebecca uh, gets married to Isaac, to Yitzchak. Yitzchak and Rivka slash Isaac and Rebecca. They get married. The Torah talks about it. And they're, they, she's, she, she's unable to, get to, to, to become pregnant. Then eventually she does become pregnant. And her pregnancy, the Torah tells us, this is straight up Torah scripture. The Torah tells us in Genesis that her, pain, her pregnancy was very painful. And it, was, it says, that the, um, her pregnancy, her, her inside was, was in turmoil. And she was, it, was so much, it was so painful that she said, she said, I almost regret ask, wanting to become pregnant because it's so painful. And our sages tell us, the commentaries tell us, that what was the nature of the pain of the pregnancy? So when she would pass by, it wasn't only a physical pain, which there also was a physical pain, but there was also some sort of um, an, a pain of, of another sort. And I'll, I'll explain to you what our sages say. When she would walk by a house of monotheistic study, there were houses of monotheistic study back then, even before, um, even in that, those times, before Sinai, etc. Before, anyway, so when she would pass by those, those places, there would be a sense of, she, she would sense that, the, the, the life inside of her was trying to come out and, and, and embrace that space. But when she would walk by a place of paganism, of, of, of polytheistic worship, there would also be a yearning from, from inside of her of life trying to emerge. And that disturbed her greatly. She was wondering what is going on with this life inside. Is it drawn toward monotheism or... The opposite. So she goes to the prophet of the time, the, uh, the spiritual master of the time, and this person channels a divine message and says, I have news for you. This is before ultrasounds. I have news for you. Mazel tov. It's twins. It's twins. And each one has its own identity and has its own nature. And the Torah says with this, she was relieved. So what's the deeper meaning of the story? So one life inside of her was drawn toward higher pursuits. 
and one life inside of her was drawn toward lower pursuits. So when she walked by a house of monotheistic worship and study, there was an attraction toward that. When she walked by the opposite place, there was also an attraction to that. How could one person, one life, be attracted to both? They're mutually exclusive. The answer is, they're twins. Each one has its nature. So Tanya says to the reader, listen to this. The book of Tanya says to you and I, everyone who studies Tanya, Mazel tov, you have twins. Mazel tov, you too have twins. Yes, that turmoil, that inner struggle inside, that confusion, that why do I feel so noble sometimes and so degraded other times? Why do I engage in higher activity? And then a second later, I'm drawn towards something completely out of character from that higher space. Why is that? How could that be? Tanya says, Mazel tov. You have twins. <laughs> Mazel tov. There are twin forces inside all of us. It's not just Rebecca who's carrying twins, literally, that each have their own identity and their own nature, but all of us have two souls that are the same thing, the same duality. One soul tends toward higher things. One soul tends toward lower things. We have them both inside. Make sense so far? And I, I hope that this rings true, this conflict of sometimes we feel so holy and sometimes we feel so not so holy, right? We, can be, we are the same person who can be there for others and think and connect and love and pray and do a mitzvah. And we're the same person that could also have, you know, darker or selfish or self-destructive thoughts. How is that possible? Tanya says, take a deep breath, relax. There's two souls. That's how they're wired. That's how they're programmed. Now, here comes the tricky part. The tricky part is that you and I, we are the deciders, arbiters perhaps, Right? We are the ones that decide which soul is going to find expression at any given moment. Let me explain. We only have one mouth. Even those that speak from both sides of their mouth, it's still one mouth, right? It's still one mouth that we possess, right? We still only have one set of hands. So at any given moment, the question is, what are we saying or doing, or for that matter, thinking? Are we channeling? The higher soul or the lower soul. So we have both forces. Going back to my airplane example, my aviation analogy, right? So you have co-pilots and each one has, is that what it looks like? The steering, the steering wheel? I don't know, right? Who knows, right? They each have their own steering wheel. But at any given moment, the question is, who is actually control, controlling the aircraft? At any moment, there's only one force that is in control, and who decides? That's where we come in, that's our choice. Then you might ask, well, who's the we? If we have two souls, then who's the I? You with me on my question? Yeah? Am I the godly soul or the animal soul? 
Well, it's not so simple because there's a third soul, which is called the intellectual soul, which is the mind that has the ability to decide and choose at any given moment what to do, and that's the choice between which soul to channel. Anyway, I, we, we could talk long and many hours and, and, and many sessions on this, this topic itself, but this is, this is the extent of the intro that I wanted to give for today's um, session as we jump into our second discourse of our text, Overcoming Folly. Because in discourse number two, we focus on the notion of how we train our inner animal, which in the email I wrote, How to Train Your Inner Dragon, but because it's, I think that's a title that's out there, and I thought it was cute. So here's the deal. Everyone's inner animal is a little bit different. This is something that's explained and explored in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. Everyone's animal is a little bit different. Here's the proof of this. You can look at someone else and their negative behavior and be all super judgy. How could they have done that? <gasps> can you imagine they did such and such? Tisk, tisk, tisk. Right? We do that all the time. And yet, we have our own, <laughs> we have our own stuff that we do. That they would say, oh, how could you do that? In other words, what's my point? Everyone's got their stuff. Why? Because everyone has a different inner animal. We all have an animal. And by the way, again, I want to be very clear. Animal is not necessarily associated with negativity. But it's certainly not the godly soul that's, ending, that's, that's landing us up in trouble. It's the, animals, the animal tendencies unchecked that could lead to destructive slash self-destructive behaviors. Okay, again, a little, little point of clarification. The point is that everybody's animal nature is a little bit different, right? Some have a very strong and passionate animal nature. Whatever they see, they want, right? Whatever it is, they have to have it. Some have a more, more meek or calm animal nature. But for what they want... You know, maybe they don't desire everything, but what they specifically do desire, oh boy, don't get in, don't get in between them and that thing. Because otherwise, they seem so nice on the outside. They seem so calm. But get in the way of that, oh boy, right? Everyone's got their, their different personality. In Kabbalah, it's, it's even, they're, they're even actual animals that are used as, a, as an analogy for different human animal natures like a, a bull nature or a sheep nature or a goat nature. And I don't mean, you know, Tom Brady, goat. I'm not, and I'm not getting into that whole, you know, thing. But there's different natures, different animal tendencies, different styles of animal souls, and therefore different styles of people, which I mentioned this parenthetically before. This is the second time I'm going to mention this parenthetically because I think it's really important. When we, when we catch ourselves judging someone else in their disgrace, in their downfall, in their mistakes, we have to be very careful. doesn't mean we should always say, oh, yeah, that's not a problem. We're allowed to notice problems. But if we think that just because that vice is not ours, therefore we are holier than thou, we have our own vices. Everybody's got their own vices. That's the reality. Vice is 
commensurate, the vice is produced by our individual animal natures. That's why it's so much easier to fix someone else's problem than our own. <laughs> you ever notice that? You can fix someone else's problem like that. We have, if only they did that, you know, just a few things, boom, like we can solve everyone else's problem, but our own, it's a little bit harder. And that's true for every human being on the planet. Everybody finds it easier to fix someone else's problem than their own. You know why? Not just because it's your problem, but because the other person's animal soul, because it's not ours, we can see it objectively and we have the tools to fix it because again, we're not stuck in it. But the stuff that's, that's, that's who we are, we have a blind spot because it's us, it's our individual challenge. I hope that makes sense. So again, I, I just said this parenthetically that this is, tr this is a, a life message about not being so judgy in life. When we find ourselves judging someone else, let's just remember, we got our own stuff to work on. It's easy to fix someone else's stuff, but honestly, that's not why we're here. That's not why you and I are here, is to, is to give everybody else advice. Although, if they need it and we can help, that's certainly a good thing, but that's not why we're here. We're here to fix our own stuff. That our godly soul and our animal soul should figure out a way how to work together, godly soul, helping refine the animal soul, the animal soul lending its gifts, and it does have gifts to the godly soul as well, and us being the moderators between the two and living, hopefully, a productive, spiritually productive and physically productive life. That is the goal. It's not to let our own animal soul run rampant and then be all judgy for everybody else's animal soul. That's not why we're here. We're here to work on our own animal soul, which is the hardest work of all, but that's exactly why we get paid the big bucks or why, we, why we're alive. Either we get paid big bucks or not, but that's why we're here. Okay, hope that makes sense. So as we jump into Discourse 2, which we will do so momentarily, I want you to keep in mind these ideas. Number one, every one of us has a godly soul and an animal soul. Number two, everyone's godly soul points them to a higher direction and the animal soul points us to a bit of a lower direction. And point number three, everyone's animal soul is a little bit different than everyone else's, as well as the godly soul. And the two are trained, the two are matched for each other to be, our godly soul has exactly the right capabilities to help control, train, whatever, the animal soul, um, and, um, and, and get it to a healthy place. Oh, but one more point, point four, which is going to be the, a very important point in this, in this um, as we begin this discourse. And that is that the goal is to refine, to train the animal soul. But it could go the other way. It's possible to go the other way. That instead of improving and refining the animal, we could actually make it even more wild than when it started. Does that make sense what I just said? Yes? It's possible through repeated, it through allowing the animal soul to rage unchecked and indulging in that space repeatedly, we can actually fortify, um, uh, more than fortify, we can um, embolden and even... Uh, make worse 
the tendencies of the animal soul. So there's two ways that we can train our inner dragon. We can make it more of a mensch, so that it only breathes fire to light our Shabbat candles, or, which would be a cool life hack, or, or, and Hanukkah as well, or we can actually make it more destructive than when it started. That's another way to train the dragon, but in a negative way. And this latter point is going to be some of the focus in our second discourse. All right, let me pause for a moment and check in and, and take any questions or clarifications or discussions, discussion points on what I said up until now. Please jump in. Make sense? Okay, by the way, the role of parents and educators. Okay, we love talking about education here. The role of parents and educators is to help a child learn how to train their inner animal. If I had to summarize in one line what the entire objective of education and parenting is, it's about helping your child learn how to train their own inner animal. That's it. Oh, you could teach them math and you could teach them, you could teach them all sorts of subjects that will be handy in life. But the most important thing you can teach a, a human being, I'm mentioning children because, you know, that's what we associate with education. But the, help, the most important thing that, um, that we need to, the most important thing that we, can, that, we, that we must teach children or human beings is the notion that you have the ability to train your inner animal and how to do that. So it's really important, and I mentioned this many times before in many different contexts, um, it's really important that we acknowledge the challenge that, I'm just, we'll speak about children now, it's a little bit easier to speak about that. It's important to acknowledge the challenge that a child may have in a certain area and to encourage them and to tell them, in other words, not to dismiss it, not to say, oh, it's no big deal or just, you know, whatever, not to shoo it away, but to acknowledge it and to then emphasize that notwithstanding the challenge and the inner challenge, that you still have the ability, you have the ability, you possess the ability to overcome the challenge and to transform the challenge into an opportunity, etc. This is the most, in my opinion, according to my understanding of Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, it's the most important life lesson a person can learn. That you are not stuck with your inner animal. Well, you're stuck with your inner animal, but you're not stuck in that negative behavior, but you can train it and you can, you can start moving it toward a, a better place. This can be done in so many different ways. It's certainly done most appropriately by modeling this behavior, right? If, if our inner animal gets the best of us, it's like the parent shouting at the child, why are you shouting, right? It's like the old cliche, you're screaming at your kids, why are you screaming at each other? So it's, if we're modeling the out of control, the inner animal, the lower, the animal's getting the best of us, then that's, that's, that's what the child is going to hear as well. If we're modeling a I tame my dragon 
in a healthy way, I don't know if that's an attitude, but if, if we model that, that I am training my dragon in a healthy way, that's what our children are going to learn. That's what our protégés, that's what our, those that are studying from us, and life is about study, we study each other, and that's the impression that the other is going to feel, that they have the ability to likewise train their inner self and not be beholden to every whim and every, you know, every thought or every feeling that comes to mind that might not be so, um, uh, so appropriate. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah. Susan? Um, just it's before I really understood this model of, of these this kind of split. I know when I would I'd get my students at the beginning of the year, I would use the term like that I had some feral students. Like I would say, okay, I have about three or four feral kids, and I would know that I would have to explicitly teach them manners or just teach them how to interact with an adult. And that was kind of the terminology. So it kind of fits. So what's interesting is that in the book of Job in Eov. It says that the human being is born as a wild donkey. And it sounds offensive, but it's not meant to be offensive. It's meant to be factual. We all have an inner animal. It's not a bad thing. It's a reality thing, right? And again, like I said a few moments ago, everyone has an inner animal. Everyone's inner animal is a little bit different. Some are, as I used the example before, some are like a bull. Some are like a sheep. Some are like... Everyone's got a different personality. We all have an animal, right? It's all, it's, there's all, an, each of us possesses an animal tendency and, and, and that can go in a different direction. So it's important, I think, to always bear in mind that the goal of education and really the goal of self-education, you know, if it's not someone else doing it for us at this point, it's us doing it for ourselves, is understanding the dynamic. We have an animal inside, an animal soul, an animal tendency, a lower tendency that has a tremendous upside, but also a tremendous downside, the more we feed it and indulge it into more selfish behaviors, the lower it's going to go. It's not going to stop. It's going to get trained in a, to be more wild, but we have the opportunity to refine it and to train it and to harness it in an incredible way. To, I, I think I want to just stick with, the, with, I don't know if I started with this, but to, to go with the example of horses, um, and, and just the, the, the first disclaimer is I'm no, I'm no expert in horses. But that being said, horses can lead to something tremendously beneficial, right? Horses can, I don't know. I don't want to sound like horses are only good if they're helping out human beings. That's not what I'm, what I'm meaning to say. But the idea that a horse, the power of a horse could be channeled in a productive direction or perhaps in a negative direction I think that's something, that, that's what I'm trying to say. So if it works with horses or not, I don't know. But the idea here is that we all have an inner animal and the, the, that force is very powerful. In fact, I didn't mention this before, I'll mention it right now. Kabbalah says that the animal soul on one level is actually stronger, more, more forceful, has more energy than the, than the godly soul. And it, if, that, if that energy is channeled in the right direction, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Um, the flip side is that if we, if we indulge in it, in the negative, then it can go, it can go to a very low place. All right. So with that in mind, let's jump back into, or let's jump into our text. I'm going to share my screen with you.
Here we go. Discourse 2, Chapter 1. Let me check the chat. <laughs> right. Okay, here we go. Uh, Discourse 2, Chapter 1. Let me make it a little bit bigger so that we all can see it. Okay, and again, I got this from HebrewBooks.org. And feel free to look up Overcoming Folly on that website. Oh, somebody wrote in the chat before that there's also a website. Hold on, let me see what it was called. I noticed that um, uh, jewishusedbooks.com. Seems like the book might be available there as well. Jewishusedbooks.com. In Town Jewish Academy gets no commission from that, etc. Just just mentioning it as a as perhaps a place to find the book. Okay, here we go. Let's jump in. Chapter one, discourse two. Until now, he says, we have been discussing the permissible. However. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, will often persuade man even to the forbidden. Again, how is it possible that a person could be persuaded to do something unhealthy? That is, again, by persuading man of the good and pleasure he will find there. Similar tactic, essentially saying, oh, but it's good. It's like, a poisonous apple that you uh, polish and make look very tasty. I feel like there's some sort of fairy tale that has that as a thing. Snow White? Is there a poisonous apple with Snow White? Am I wrong here? It's been a very, very long time. Can anybody corroborate that? Does anybody know? I have no clue. Okay. Correct, Snow White. That is correct, okay. But she eats a poisonous apple that looks good? Is that what's going on? Is that legit? I think so. Yeah. All right. See, there you go. It's a clear, clear concept. So how do we fall into the forbidden? And forbidden could be anything, right? Forbidden is essentially that which is unhealthy and unholy. So how is that possible? Again, we have this inner voice that says, oh, no, it's good. It's pleasurable. Oh, it's going to be great. Let's continue. It stimulates man's lust until he cannot restrain himself and he succumbs, God forbid. Now, let's take a look at how the Talmud describes this. This is really powerful. And I wanted, I'm going to share with you a few insights on this line, but let's, let's do the simple way first. Our sages in Tractate Shabbat describe the method employed by the Yetzirah. Yetzirah means evil inclination. That's the inner voice that tries to get us to mess up. Such, the Talmud says, quote, such is the craft, this is the um, strategy of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Today it says, listen, this is very important. Today it says, do so. Tomorrow it says, do thus. Then eventually it says, go and worship idols. It, it, the English doesn't really do justice to, to the original. In the Hebrew, it's Hayom, um, today, today the inner voice says, I say, Kach, do this. Tomorrow it says, I say, Kach, do that. The next, and then eventually it says, go and worship idols, which means that no one goes and throws away their value system overnight. That's not how it works. No one self-detonates overnight. It's not how it happens. How does it happen? Slowly but surely, one step at a time. 
right? How do we veer off the, 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 a, a healthy, how do we go from a place of, of healthy, a healthy place, to an unhealthy place? One small step at a time. By the way, we can also get back to a good place one step at a time. But this is talking about how we go from a good place to, an, to a negative place. The idea here is step by step. Susan. The other night, Stephen and I were uh, watching Macbeth, and there's this quote, uh, uh, Banquo tells Macbeth, the instruments of darkness tell us truth and win us with honest trifles. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's what we're studying in Kabbalah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I that quote was so perfect. It's the little things, right? It's the little things that get us onto that path. So what's interesting is there's two ways to understand this. One way is kind of like an inoculation, if you will. I don't know if this is maybe like a reverse inoculation where you taste a little bit of it and you're like, that wasn't so bad. So you taste a little bit more. Oh, that wasn't so bad until you're involved in the whole thing, right? So that's one way of understanding it. But there's even a more subtle way of understanding it that I think is much more powerful. And that is, it doesn't have to even be in the same area as idolatry in this example. That's what it's, you know, it's, it's, that's the end game in the Talmudic quote. It doesn't have to even be in the same category as that end game. It could be anything that gets us more ego-driven and less God-driven, more self and less God. There's a pendulum. There's a, and this is, Yada Inish Benafshe, everyone knows for themselves about their inner, inner balance scale that, that balances between what I want and what God wants or what is selfish and what's selfless or what's you know, not so holy and, what's so, and, and what is holy. And we all have that balance. And the point is, the more pebbles one at a time we put on one side of the scale, at some point it just overwhelms the scale and that's where we are. So again, there's two ways of understanding it. One way is that the evil inclination gets us sucked into a negative path slowly but surely into that direction. So it's like, you know, it's um, touch the tree, touch the apple, pick the apple, smell the apple, lick the apple, um, peel the apple, lick the apple again, take a half a bite and spit it out, and before you know it, you're eating the whole apple. I'm just using an apple as an example, but right, that's one way of understanding it. Little by little, we end up eating the apple, the, the poisonous apple. The other way to look at it is, it doesn't have to be an apple or an apple tree. It could be anything. It could be, today I'm gonna be focused on self, and tomorrow I'm gonna indulge in self, and the next day, self. And before you know it, we've completely forgotten about God to the point that we are no longer sensitive to that which is holy and that which is pure. And I know that we're using here the example of idolatry versus you know, God and whatever, but it could be in any area. The point is there's a direct persuasion, but also an indirect persuasion that is a little bit more subtle, but I think even more nefarious because we don't even realize which direction we're headed until 
the damage has been done. Does that make sense? I want to give you an example with relationships. Because, to be honest, that's kind of what we're talking about. Relationship with God. Idolatry is kind of, I'm just going to use this expression, cheating on God. That's, that's kind of the way we understand this to be. And so the question is, how does you know, infidelity happen? Right? How does it happen? And there are many answers to that. But here's one way. It might not start with flirting with someone directly and then, you know, conversations and then text messages. And then that doesn't, that's not the only way that that happens. That's one way. That's the more direct path. As I said, there's two ways to understand. There's the direct or the indirect. But you know what the indirect way is? It's working a little bit later and not checking in. Not because of any conversation with somebody else, but it's just lack of sensitivity toward the other. And then that keeps on, you see where I'm going with this? And then that builds and builds and builds. And the more we're more aware of what we want and self and less sensitive to the other, that could lead to ultimately worshiping idols, so to speak, to being unfaithful in our... In our um, commitment, whether it's to God or to another. So again, there's two ways. One is a more direct, slippery slope, like, oh, step one, step two, step three, it's going to get you down to that place. Another, But another method is, it could seem completely in a different area, but it's all about uh, heightening our own selfish sensitivities and desensitizing our sensitivities toward the other, whatever that means, in, in whatever context it is. All right, let me make sure. I just want to check in. You know, I, 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 I try to find the balance between kind of alluding to certain things and speaking to things very clearly. I just I want to make sure that what I'm saying is making sense. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yes? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead, Toba. Um, what you say about being sensitive to others is perfectly clear. But there's also a saying that um, when you get to Gun Eden, you'll be asked and judged on did you take every pleasure that you could have, harmless pleasure, which tends to make me think you should take. The pleasures, but then you're saying that leads to a slippery slope. So, where's the, you know, the line? Excellent question. So, what Toba, what you're referring to is there is a there's a teaching that says that when we come up to heaven, we're going to be asked, you know, did you eat from everything that you could have eaten from or whatever? And the way Kabbalah understands that is the understanding that everything that's around us can be utilized for uh, well not everything, but permissible things at least, can be utilized for a higher purpose. So it's not just indulging for the sake of indulgence. It's about engaging in the pleasure for a higher pleasure. And that's really, according to Kabbalah, what the question is. It's not, you know, did you eat, you know, every dessert from the buffet at the, at the wedding? It's more of like when you ate it, right, were you channeling it in a higher direction? So it actually supports... The, the, idea that we're, the ideas that we're discussing here, because what we're talking about 
as being the craft of the Eight Sahara, it's not an objective thing of do this behavior or don't do this behavior. There's also an intention and a mindfulness that is part and parcel of the craft of the Eight Sahara. It's not just eat this or don't eat that. It's eat this because of, uh, because of selfish reasons or do that for selfish reasons as opposed to divine reasons. And it moves us away. Here's the, the core idea. The Yetzirah, the evil inclination, its job, and it's not bad, it's, well, it itself is not evil. It's an evil inclination, but it's employed by God to provide the challenge for us to push up against. Otherwise, life wouldn't be challenging and there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be purpose as we know it. That's an, as an aside. But the Yetzirah's job is to move us away from divine sensitivity and toward self-sensitivity. Instead of thinking about what God wants, it's what do I want. Again, in a relationship, it would be the same thing. Instead of thinking about what the other wants or what the relationship needs, it's what do I want. And it may not be about anybody else at that point. Getting back to my relationship example, it may not be anybody else in the office or anybody... It doesn't have to be about anybody else. It's about where I am at. And how much do I, how much am I paying attention to and sensitive to the other? And the moment that balance hits a little bit too far, anything's possible. Because we've forgotten about that person. And by the way, right, in the aftermath, the person might say, Oi, what was I thinking? That wasn't the real me. The same, the same aftermath statement that we talk about, right? That we talked about at the beginning of the class. This is the folly. This is the folly. The folly is the persuasion of away from our truth, our North Star, so to speak, the way, away from what's really important. All right, so back inside. The Talmud says, again, we quoted the Talmud, the craft of the Yitzhar is, today it says do this, then do that, and then eventually go and worship idols. Here we go. Let's jump inside the way he explains it. It first persuades, we are, can I make this text highlighted? I think I can. We're right here. It first persuades him or her, the person, to do permissible things because leading man to such indulgences is not difficult. The Yetzirah doesn't say, oh, violate your relationship with God. Day one, of course not, it's not going to work. But first starts persuading the person to permissible things because leading a person to such indulgence is not difficult. However, and this is the second model that I tried to explain before, not the first one where it's like pointing you toward that direction, but just general indulgence and lack of sensitivity. Here we go. However, through indulgence, man becomes coarsened and gross. Gross means, again, coarse. And the desires of the animal soul grow and increase, reaching out for every pleasure without limits. His desire becomes intense. He fiercely desires every pleasure. Essentially, the Yetzirah has one objective, and that is to fan the flames of the inner animal, of the inner self, of the selfish, the self-centered part of self, to feed that inner animal, first with, you know, 
kosher thing, so to speak. Everything's kosher, but you're just feeding the animal, feeding the self, and ultimately, eventually, becomes completely about self and not even a care about anyone else or anything else, including God. Here he talks about, he segues into a discussion about different types of animal souls that I mentioned before. Um, The point here is going to be, it doesn't matter what type of animal soul you have initially, you and I, through choice, can create a monster. That's what I intended, by the way, just so you know, as I mentioned before, with the title, How to Train Your Dragon, it was not how to train it in a healthy way, it was how to train it to become, how to take a little shepsala, a little sheep, and make it into um, an out-of-control dragon or an out-of-control monster. And, and unfortunately, we, we can get ourselves to that place through, through repeated indulgences. Here we go, the animal soul. There are different sorts of nature of the animal soul. Amongst people, different people have different types of animal souls. There is a person in whom the animal soul is not so forceful. This person has a desire for certain things, but it is quite uninterested in others. And his desire for the things he does want is also rather half-hearted. It's okay if it's not grand, if it's okay if I feel like there's a word missing here. It's okay if he's or if it's not granted his wish. All right, if he's not granted his wish. So this is uh, um, what we would call a weak or meek animal soul. Not, I'm not putting it, I'm not saying this in a um, uh, disparaging way, just assessing the nature of the animal soul, right? If you hooked up the animal soul to an animal solomometer, which doesn't exist, right? So you would see, oh, this animal soul is not so, not so strong. You should know that the parentheses is Yiddish, as is recht, as nit euch. It's fine if not. Right? That's this person's attitude. They're not running after things. Ah, yeah, I'd like it. And if not, it's also fine. They're not, they, this, this is the type of person that doesn't run after things. Now, you might be thinking, well, what kind of person is that? <laughs> Where is that person? Some people don't have fierce desires. They're, they're okay not having. Okay, in the middle of the paragraph, another person's animal soul, on the other hand, might be vigorous. He wants whatever he sees. If he learns of a pleasure, he wants it. In the Yiddish, er vil alts. He wants everything. That's the principle. He wants everything. Right? This... This is a completely different nature, right? He's talking about two different, and in this paragraph, one paragraph, he's giving us two different extremes. One person is not really so passionate by nature, doesn't really want whatever he does want, it's half-hearted. The other person wants everything. Even if he doesn't know about it, the moment he knows about it, yeah, I want that too. (laughs) Sign me up, I want it. Erville Alts, he wants everything. His desires are powerful, insistent, and aggressive, and He will not rest and be tranquil until fulfilling his indulgence. So these are different, completely different sides of the spectrum of animal soul. And these are the extremes, right? The animal soul that's super meek and not forceful and the animal soul that wants everything. You and I fall somewhere in between, right? Along the gray, along the, the continuum. Some of us have more 
we call in Yiddish or Hebrew, taiva, more passion, more, more, more um, uh, passion toward indulgences. Some of us less, less taivas. Some of us by nature are more self-restrained. Some are more, le- some are less self-restrained. That's, that's human nature. And that's what he's saying here. Different animals. By the way, it's important. Again, I'm probably for the third or fourth time today. No one's better or worse. Everyone's got their own animal to contend with, right? The one whose nature is not so forceful has their own challenges, right? And the one who's passionate also has challenges. So everyone's got a challenge. Everyone's got to work with their own. But here's the kicker. This is why he's saying this. Take a look at the next paragraph. It is possible that even when one's animal soul is not particularly strong intrinsically, in other words, by nature, they are like that first example that we gave, the not-so-passionate, not-so-indulgent animal soul. It's possible that even if that is the nature, it may develop strength through indulgence of desires. You and I can take a weak animal and build it up and make it strong and make it passionate and lead it to become out of control. Through indulgence of desires, what that means is through repeatedly giving to desire and feeding desire and feeding desire, we can make the animal into a powerful force that can act to our own detriment. It becomes or it can become gross to the core. Though it was initially weak, constant indulgence of its wishes invigorated to lust after everything and to lust even violently, aggressively. So a person, here's the point. An animal doesn't always stay in its original nature. You can take a weak animal and make it into a wild animal. At least, I don't know if that ha- that's true in nature, but it's true within the human animal, the, the inner human animal soul. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but the animal soul within the human being can be ratcheted up from its nature, from its original nature, which was maybe a little bit more meek, into something that is completely out of control. And it seems like we are no longer in control of it. Let's continue inside. Page 48. He continues. And he's quoting... Oh yeah, he'll quote it in a second. From Zohar, from Kabbalah. So it says like this. Vigor of the animal soul weakens the godly soul. I used the example of a, of a scale or a balance before. It, it's, it's kind of either or in certain situations. Not always in life, you know, but in some situations, in some contexts, it, it's, it's kind of this balance. And it's either one way or the other way. It can't be both ways. He says, vigor of the animal soul necessarily weakens the godly soul. As the saying goes, this is from one of the original sources of Kabbalah in Zohar. It says, Vigor of body is weakness of spirit. No, it doesn't mean that if we exercise, that means our soul is compromised. It's not what it means. Vigor of body does not mean health. Vigor of body means self 
and selfish indulgence. It means very specifically what we're talking about in this discourse, in this discussion today. It means indulging in self, in selfishness, in lowly things, in, 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 in hedonistic pleasures, indulging in self, body things, material things, automatically weakens our sensitivity toward the spiritual. That's the way it is. Think about human relationships. Think about a human relationship. It begins with not checking in, not phoning, not uh, turning more inward. And before you know it, a person can become distant, dist distant from a loved one. How does it happen? Vigor of self. I'm redefining this, right? Strengthening self weakens sensitivity toward the other. In the language of the original, vigor of body is weakness of spirit. So let's continue inside. Strength, he defines it in our context, strengthening the materiality, the coarseness, if you will, of the animal soul weakens the godly soul. Now, you have to be clear here. It's not actually weakening the godly soul, but it's weakening the impact or the voice that the godly soul has on us. Not that the godly soul ever stops fiercely desiring God, but our awareness of the godly soul inside of us does weaken. Does that make sense? The more we become aware of our animal, the more we feed our animal, the more weak the voice, the more soft and subtle becomes the voice of our godly soul. It's, I think it's so telling. The first example that he gives here. I think it's so telling. Look what he says. It doesn't even need to be mentioned. It's needless to mention. Needless to say. That he becomes estranged from Torah study and service of the heart prayer. For he is incapable of comprehending any concept of godliness or meditating on it and sensing the godly concept in the depths of his heart, of his soul, arousing his heart to cleave to God and to be assimilated within godliness. All of this is absolutely irrelevant to him. What he's saying is a person that indulges in the physical, in the material, not even forbidden things, that's the point here, even permissible, even permitted things, but the more a person is focused on feeding the animal, the less they care, he or she cares about the spiritual. So Torah study, who has time for it? Prayer, waste of time. Why? Because the sensitivity is not there anymore. I want to be very clear here. It's not like doomed and there's no way, there's no way to ever recapture that. Of course there is. And you know the way, right? It's the balance. So lessen, ease up on the, on the material indulgence and the spiritual side will, will lift up and the sensitivity will lift up. But as long as one is in, so to speak, the throes or in the clutches of the material indulgences, the sensitivity toward the spiritual is not going to be there. And so when a person studies Torah, it's not going to seem, look what he says here. I want to be very, very clear in the, in the language. For he is incapable, at least in the moment, not 
ever incapable, but in the moment of comprehending any concept of godliness. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that the person can't study Torah as an intellectual thing, of course. But to sense the, the spirit in the Torah, to sense the, the, the getlechite, that's Yiddish, for godliness, to, to sense the, the spirituality within the study, to be uplifted by the study and not just read it as something, yeah, interesting, eh, whatever, eh, something, to, not another idea that I can dismiss. But to really sense the spirituality of it, the godliness in it, that requires a sensitivity. And here's the question. What are we sensitive to? What are we sensitive to? Are we sensitive to self? We're sensitive to God. Again, were you, um, this, this, this chapter is specifically speaking about our connection with God, so that's the context. But you and I can adapt it into any area of our life, right? When it comes to human relationship, the same thing. But are we sensitive to that which is beyond us or not? And I love the fact that he mentions prayer as being collateral damage here. Because there is, in my opinion, there is no other activity that requires a sensitivity as tefillah, as prayer. You know, even Torah study, yeah, to sense the godliness in it, you need, you need a sensitivity, right? Otherwise, it's a subject, like any other subject, fine. But prayer, you can't even begin without sensitivity. Because who's reading words off a page for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour, if, if, if there's, if, what's the point, right? What's the point? So prayer requires a sensitivity. That's why it's called in the Talmud, Avodah service of the heart. Prayer is not a service of the mouth, even though we say the prayers out, you know, with our lips, but prayer is a service of the heart. It, it's an expression of a, of a feeling that we verbalize. Prayer is emotion verbalized. It's emotion, our feelings to God being articulated. That's what tefillah is. It's the most beautiful thing in the world. There's nothing as beautiful as tefillah, as prayer. It's giving a voice to our feelings for God. Well, guess what? How can you give a voice to feelings for God if you don't have a feeling for God? If our day is filled with feelings of self, right? How do I feel? How do I, what do I need? Where am I going to do this? What am I going to do next? If it's all about me, 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 and my inner animal. So what's, what's, what does prayer look like? What do we do when we pray? Well, then maybe prayer becomes a laundry list of God. If you're out there, this is what I need. Here's my laundry list. That's not tefillah. That's not avodah shabalev. That's not tefillah. I don't know what that is. That's, um, that's not tefillah, that's not prayer. So, Torah study, which is about not just a subject, an academic study, but it's about it's, it's discovering God in the study. And prayer, which is about communicating our feelings for God in, 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 in language. These two things can't be done. Or, sorry, these, things, these, these activities are compromised right? They're compromised when we indulge in the animal soul and the animal spirit. The more we indulge in the animal, the less we can actually experience Torah study the way it's intended and prayer the way it's intended.
as he says, I, I think, I think I finished this, this paragraph. Maybe I didn't. All this is absolutely irrelevant to him. Somebody who is self-absorbed, right? Someone who is in the clutches of their animal soul. They fed their animal soul so much that that is where they are at. It's all about self. So then I'm going to search godliness in Torah. I'm going to express my emotions to God, you know, in prayer. Why? It's irrelevant. What's the meaning? How does it help me? Right? If you tell me how it helps me, fine. Then you have my attention. But if it's about God, then what are we talking about here? Let's continue. But the effects go far deeper. In other words, beyond Torah study and prayer not being the way they need to be, the effects go far deeper and far more severe. The fear of God, and I explained this, I think, last week. Did I explain this last week at Kabbalah Coffee, what it means to have fear of God? Respect? I think I did, right? Yeah. The fear of God is not present before his eyes. Yeah, thank you. The fear of God, which means not being afraid of God, but it means respecting God, right? Dignity, respecting God, being a mensch, because God, right? That fear of God is completely lost. It's not present before his eyes. Again, with repeated indulgence and feeding the animal soul until it's out of control, etc., then Torah study becomes compromised, prayer becomes compromised, and fear of God a respect for God is no longer present before his eyes. And he simply forgets about godliness. Again, the most, I think, the, the, the clearest way, the clearest analogy I can give is a person who loved their spouse, loves their spouse still on some level, but is completely at this point has become so self-absorbed, so self-obsessed that they no longer are thinking about what, how this action could affect the other person. Are you with me? Completely forgetting about how this choice might affect the other person. And that's what he says. The fear of God is not present, ever present before his eyes. So therefore, he simply forgets about godliness. It's just not on the mind. It's just not on his, in his awareness. Who, what is he aware of? Self. What I need. How I feel. What I want. Right? My desires, my, 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 my needs, my, my stuff. God? Who's thinking about God? That's what it means not to have fear of God. It doesn't mean being afraid of God, not being afraid of God. It means are, are we thinking of God in the moment? Right? Is God at all a factor in this decision, in this choice, in this action? in this moment, or not. That's what it means. And it leads to this. It leads to this condition, that the fact that a certain act or object may be contrary to God's will does not deter him from doing what he wants. Right? The fact that God doesn't want, or does want, irrelevant. For godliness and God's will are not felt within him that he might be affected by them. Now, to clarify... By no means does he deny God in his Torah. No. If you ask him, do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe in Torah? Yes. Do you love your spouse? Yes. 100%. 100%. He knows that the Torah is truth and that what he wishes is forbidden by the Torah. Nevertheless, he also fails to sense 
the prohibition within himself, which will prevent him from succumbing to evil and enable him to resist his lust. In other words, that sensitivity, that if it's, if it's distasteful for God, it's also distasteful for me because, because I'm sensitive to that, that sensitivity is lost. So it only is, yeah, I believe in God, believe in Torah, God doesn't want it, fine, but I need it. I want it. So that's how we're going to roll. That's what's going on. What's the source of all this? What's the source? How do we get there? That's the key. The key is not focusing on the problem. This book is about solutions. This is overcoming folly. This is not folly. <laughs> this is not, the book is not called Folly Explained. This is called Overcoming Folly. This is about how to solve the problem. To solve the problem, we need to understand the source of the problem. What we just read in the last two paragraphs is the outcome, is the result of the problem. Well, what was the problem? We read about it on the previous page. You, you remember, the problem was feeding the animal too much. Going overboard with self-indulgence in the permissible, not the forbidden, right? The, the forbidden is, is the end of the line after being completely only focused on self. The end of it is being able to do something that hurts the other because who's even thinking about the other that's at this moment? We're only thinking about self. That's the end of the line. That's not the beginning of the line. What's the beginning? Indulging in self. So how do we stop that? Here we go. Well, part of it is understanding where it could lead to, but that's not the full, it's not, that's, I don't know if that's going to be a full deterrence. Let's jump in. This is all due. This, that we just explained, lack of sensitivity in Torah study and prayer, and ultimately leading to not really being bothered by doing something we shouldn't be doing, right? This is all due to his constant indulgence. In other words, where does it begin? With constant indulgence of permissible desires. No one's talking yet about the forbidden. That's the end of the line. That's the result. What's the source? It's indulging in that which is totally okay which gives his animal soul, when I say totally okay, I mean it's still selfish, but it's permissible, which gives his animal soul extraordinary vigor and correspondingly weakens his godly soul. It's all about awareness. What are we aware of? Are we, are we aware of self or are we aware of others? What are we sensitive to? Are we sensitive to self or sensitive to others? You might say, well, why can't you be both? You can try. You can try, but if we are indulging in self, we will inevitably find that we become a little bit less sensitive to the other and what they need and what they feel and how they feel and what they want, etc. Hence, hence, when the animal soul persuades him, urging the desirability of whatever it is, oh, sorry, the hence, hence is the outcome. We're, we're back he flips back to the, to, the, to, the end, to the end of the line here, right? All of this was due. The source of it was indulging in what seemed to be innocently permissible, but it was still self-indulgent, still animalistic. So hence is the end of the line. Hence, when the animal soul persuades him, urging the desirability of whatever it is, though it may be prohibited. In other words, when the animal soul ultimately pulls out 
that which is prohibited, well, at that point, it's too late. He's drawn toward it and stumbles over this obstacle. Why? Because again, the sensitivity is gone. We become desensitized. And therefore, it doesn't seem like a big deal at this point. Even though we know that it's wrong, but we don't feel that it's wrong. What, what, what happened with the feeling of, of it being wrong? Okay, we, we've dulled our senses through repeated indulgence in, 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 in materialism. We can now readily understand how it comes to pass that man deludes himself into thinking that his sinful desires are good. When in reality, they are totally evil and his soul becomes terribly debased as a result, as we will explain. In other words, this is, we can now understand how a person convinces himself, this is fine, this is good, this is enjoyable, this is pleasurable, when in reality, this is a complete debasement. And debasement means essentially, it's a, how do you, what's another word for being, for, for, de, for, for debased? It's like, It's a um, corrupt. I, I, I don't want it to be sound. I don't want it to sound as judgy as as unfortunate. It's a distortion. Sorry. Disconnected. Yeah, it's like it's like disconnected from truth, from reality, from even your own truth in reality, right? Because in truth, as we said on the previous page, this person does believe in God. The person does love Torah. It is in there. Right? In a relationship, there is still the love there. So what's happening? What's going on? It's just the lack of sensitivity. And so what's really important here is, and we're not going to continue. Um, yeah, this is already a new to Another factor is a new topic, and that requires a, a new introduction and a new, a new session. But what's important to recognize here is that what we're trying to do is trying to understand how we end up doing things that we know and that we later that we know are wrong that we later on regret that we you know facepalm like what was i thinking like how do we get in, that we and that we severely regret i mean again think about the human example that i've been giving you know talk about regret like so how do we get there how do we get there it's easy to say oh well the person's just a bad person or it's easy to say oh well they you know flirted with danger or whatever it is but the more accurate way of understanding it, as we understand in Kabbalah, is it has nothing to do with that ultimate action. It, 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 it doesn't begin there. It begins with self-regulation. That's really what it begins with, self-regulation. Are we able to regulate self? Are we able to, are we able to regulate self to the point that we can feel something and feel a self-desire and tell ourselves, not right now. If we can't say no to our animal, even in the permissible, we won't be able to say no to it when it pulls out the forbidden. That's the line. That's the bumper sticker, right? Just say no. No, I'm kidding. All right, the, the, I mean, yes or no, but the... If we can't say no when it's permissible, then how will we be able to say no when it's forbidden? Oh, because when it's forbidden, I would never do that. 
Yeah, but at that point, the sensitivity is gone. The sensitivity is just not there. So it becomes really important in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy to draw lines, to draw lines, even in the permissible, so that we don't become slaves to our inner animal. We tell our, we tell our animal, I hear you, you're not in control. Yes, sometimes we're going to do what the animal wants, whatever, but we are not slaves to the animal because once that happens, next stop, whatever, right? We, we outlined it today. Whether spiritually or, or, or physically, whatever it is, it, it's the same thing, right? It's just different relationships, same thing. And these are only... It's only uh, one possible outcome of this. There are many, many sorts of outcomes. So this is why we have the, the notion that we actually introduced in our first discourse some weeks ago, sanctify yourself in the permissible. Even if it's okay, you can still create a boundary to say, I'm only going to have this, but not that, right? Even though it's permissible. So what's the problem? Because the question is, how, how sensitive am I to that which is higher versus to my animal, to my lower tendencies? Because the more I give in to that, the more I can increase the passion of the animal and increase the reliance on the animal and decrease and the sensitivity to, to the animal and conversely desensitize toward that which is higher and that which is really true and right. All right, so what's the moral of the story? We don't solve problems at the end. We need to solve them at the beginning. We need to go into, we need to go into our experiences with eyes wide open and to be able to have, find a discipline even within the permissible. All right, hope that made sense. Again, this is, we've just begun the second discourse. There's so much more to talk about, let alone the fact that there are 28 discourses in this book, which is, <laughs> we've got a very long journey. My goal, though, is, just so you know, there's different ways to study. Um, you know, you can take, you can go through things very quickly and take like a bird's eye view and get the whole picture. We could summarize everything and just give like the, you know, helicopter view of like the whole thing. Or we can, you know, examine like the whole forest or we can examine each tree. My goal each week is to really do a bit of a hybrid, which is we're going to go through each tree, but also try to paint a little bit of the, of the overall picture. I hope it's coming through okay and I hope it made sense. All right, let me check in. Questions, comments, reflections. Please jump in. I, I, um, I have a... Um... It's not really a question, but it's, I, I love it, the idea, like through um, a prayer, we, we, can, um, we can connect with the higher like, like energy. And I, for me, it's, it's to realize that, that when we pray for like little things, because we, we eat an apple or we eat everything or, or like little things, it's, it's the opportunity to elevate like the, the normal things and, the, and probably the, the more animal things. Right. And um, that 
it's and, and with that it's like a question like I, I assume like it's one big energy like from from God like if we have the opportunity to 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 connect with that energy in in all the things like like the animal things and the, the like the spiritual things it's it's the way to to elevate and to put in in order I think everything it's it's very difficult it's easy to connect like right. the spiritual things the the, the the big challenge is how how you connect like in in little things and in the animal things and in and in body right I love the class because it's look like me like it's it's one big energy and like the love energy of, of God like we have to to try to to connect right I think it's very thank you thank you for sharing that and, and I'm glad that you're that you enjoyed the discussion it's you're saying what you're saying is exactly correct and that is that there is a way to engage in the same physical activities but be driven by the spiritual energy, the connected energy, and not just the animal energy. So am I eating it just because, you know, uh, from a lower place or from a connected place, right, from a sensitivity place? Yes. And that's, that's the key to elevating every experience and in a positive way to train the dragon. So we can take the animal and make it lower or lift it up and connect it with the greater energy. And that's exactly, that's exactly where we're headed with in this conversation, right? Instead of completely blocking out anything higher and making our experiences like eating the apple only lower, we can like saying a bracha, saying a blessing before and being aware that this apple is not just an apple. It's connected with the land and the energy and the farmer and God that blessed the land and blessed the seeds and blessed the tree and blessed all and created all this. When we do that, it becomes a much greater experience. And then it's not, it's not an animal experience. It's a divine experience. It's a connected experience. And if we're aware of God, even when we eat an apple, then certainly when we pray, we're going to be aware of God, right? Because the whole day is a prayer, is a meditation. Very, very well said. Exactly. So it all begins in the beginning. It's all about mindset, right? It's all about the mindset. Am I indulging in the animal? It's not even about necessarily the activity that we're doing. And that's a very important clarification. Am I indulging in a lower space? Or am I connecting with a higher space at this very moment? It could be the same activities, right? And maybe the discipline that I mentioned at the end is not so much a discipline of how much, but will I, you know, how many apples, how many apples will I eat? But it's how will I eat the apple, right? How will I do this? Lower or higher? Disconnected or connected? Yeah, and I think probably if we, we believe that we are always... It's very difficult, but we are, if we are connected with that higher energy, probably the, the, um, the situation resolved in that way. We, we don't have to be like, I have to, I have to contend, I have to decide what, what, what way to take. Probably the way it will take uh, alone. Our, I think our work is to be connected 
to to that higher energy. Right, and it, yeah, what you're saying is it helps guide us in those moments of uncertainty, that higher connection, 100%. Yeah, yeah. very well very said. Pleasure, class. pleasure. Questions, comments? Any other questions, comments, reflections? Good, all good? Awesome. Two thumbs up. Thank you, not, not for me, for all of you. Thank you very much for joining me here today for Kabbalah Coffee. I wish you all a Shavua Tov, a wonderful week, a week filled with blessings of good health and happiness and nachas and only, only amazing things Amen. and Amen. clarity and higher connection. May you find spiritual energy in everything that you do and transform all your experiences to something truly blessed. All right. Take care, everybody. Amen. And we'll see you very soon. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Pleasure, pleasure. Take care.